Romans chapter 11. Can you turn there? We're going to be looking at some verses and uh, uh, encouraged today by this chapter. Romans chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. And when you're there, could you please stand and we'll read together. It says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what, Elijah, uh, what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone, I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Is, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, ob, elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution to, for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their tre trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Romans chapter 11. We pray that you will bless our study as we enter into it. Help me to preach your word, not merely my ideas. Open our hearts to your truths that we might be shaped by them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, can you all hear me okay? Is this mic best or would I be better off with a handheld? This is okay? Um, if I lose my voice halfway through, whoever is most tracking along with me, just come on up and do your best to finish it out, all right? Oh, here he comes. Coming now, is there another? Okay. Martin Luther, the great Christian reformer, he was once uh, had he, he once had a, a three days of black depression that had just come over him. Uh, something had gone wrong in his life, and he was so dark and and so low in his depression. He just sat in his room, staring off, 
and, uh, and on the third day, his wife comes down wearing funeral clothes. And he looks at her and he says, who died? And she, said, she looks at her husband and she says, God, God has died. And he's like, what? How, how do you think God has died? And she was like, oh, I'm sorry. I, the way you were acting, I thought God died. That's a good lesson. But a question. Have, has God ever let you down? Well, let's, I, I, get the, I get the Sunday school answer, but let's be real. Do you, have you ever felt as if God let you down? I have. I have felt at times in my life where I thought, you know, I'm trying to be faithful. You know, God wants to save people. I'm doing this, and it doesn't happen. And I feel let down discouraged. Something had gone wrong. Sometimes we feel that God has failed us. Sometimes we feel that God has disappointed us. Sometimes we might even feel that God has abandoned us, as if God has stopped moving in some way. So last week, if you were here, I preached on Romans chapter 10, and I tried to give you this charge to go into all the world and preach the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. That is sort of the high point of Romans chapter 10. Now, a week later, here you are, and maybe some of you have taken up that charge and you tried to share the gospel with somebody this last week and tried to call somebody to repent and believe, and you're here not feeling a, a, a victorious one, but you're here feeling rejected and discouraged. You know, I tried to be about my ministry that God's called me. I tried to take the gospel to my family. I tried to take the gospel to my neighbors. I tried to take the gospel to those that I love, to my community, to my people, and they have rejected Christ. And because they've rejected Christ, there's a sense in which they've even rejected me. Maybe not outright, but in some fashion I feel rejected. You know, that's, that's the life of a hard ministry. And as a result of a hard ministry, there can be times where you, Christian, can just feel discouraged with God. God isn't saving some of the people you most love. God isn't saving some of the people you most long to see saved. You've tried to effectively share the gospel and they've outright rejected it and you can grow discouraged with God as if he stopped saving. So the question I want to get to today is how do I not grow discouraged in God when those I love reject him? So it's a very specific question we're looking at today. Let me give you a, a scenario, a couple scenarios to explain this. You're there for a friend. You sat with her for hours and hours trying to console her, trying to help her, trying to counsel her, trying to love her. And she struggles. 
And over the months and even over the years, you've got glimmers of hope in that like she's just started to open up to spiritual conversations. And you've shared the gospel with her and you're seeing some, maybe some potential that maybe she will turn to Christ and be saved. Only now to be abandoned by her. You're alone, she's rejected you, off partying with friends, and you're sitting on the floor in tears. Another common scenario. Somebody who is much smarter than you, an intellectual type, doesn't believe in Jesus, and kind of belittles you for your faith. And you're wondering, if they're so smart, why don't they believe in Christ? And you're discouraged. Or another common scenario, you care so deeply about the guys in the streets that you grew up with, your brothers, your family, and now you've become a Christian. You were so overwhelmed by the gospel, you fell in love with Christ. And in your naivety, you believed that everybody else, once they have the opportunity to hear the gospel, will also, whoop, will also fall in love with Christ. You know, have, have you guys ever had that experience? Like when you finally come to believe the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you just think, man, like all these people that I love, they just haven't heard it correctly. And if they hear it correctly, they're going to be so won over in the same way that I was. And so you've taken it to them, and you've explained it to them, and they still are dull spiritually. They still reject it. And, and now time has gone by, and you're here in the church, and you feel actually more and more disconnected from your community, disconnected from those that you love, disconnected from your family who have rejected Christ. And you're confused and discouraged. And all of this, you see, all, what the, the, what's common with all three of these scenarios, and many more, is that in each one of these situations, we can be tempted to believe that God is powerless, that God is careless, that God has stopped saving with you, that God has let you down. Now, I assume many Jews felt this way in Rome about their own brothers and sisters, Jewish, believe, uh, Jewish people who have not believed in Jesus Christ. Like, if anybody should believe, it's us, brother Jew. But you've rejected Christ. And that's left them scratching their heads. And so in Romans 9 through 11, the, these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, they go together. This is, this is one big thought here. And, and these three chapters are dealing with the question, what about the Jews? What about our own people who have rejected Christ? As they look at the church and they see hordes of Gentiles flooding into the church, people that don't know their customs, people that don't know their culture, and those are the ones that are turning to Christ 
And those are the ones that are now, by Paul, being called true Israel. They're like, what? And they're discouraged. Because the ones they most want to see saved are rejecting Christ. I wonder if you know that feeling. This, for them, it's more than just, you know, this discouragement about their own people. There's a deeper question here, and that is this. Has God failed? You see, if, if, if God made a covenant with Abraham, and the Jews are Abraham's people, and they have all rejected the Messiah when the Messiah finally came, and many cut off eternally. What does that say about the character of God? Has God failed? And so that question and theme, it's, it's asked a hundred different ways, but it's, it's the common question throughout Romans 9, 10, and 11. Or as we get to 11 chapter 1, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, ministry can be hard. Ministry can often feel fruitless, and it can feel frustrating. But in our deepest despair, as we're seeing our loved ones reject Christ, the biggest challenge that faces us, and I, I, I think that you would understand what I mean by this, is it, it's not really about them, but it's about God. Can we really trust God? It, 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 does God love my family as much as I love them? And if, God, if, if they're rejecting God, and if God is then rejecting them, can I too be rejected by God? Can I trust this God? So Romans chapter 11 is actually an, a very wonderful chapter. But here's, this is kind of my preface as we begin our study through Romans chapter 11. We've got about three sermons out of this chapter here, uh, two more to come. Most of us, I'm going to say most of you, all right, have never really taken your time to read chapter 11. I know that because of my own typical reading of Romans. I get through Romans 1 through 8. And it's exciting, and then I get in Romans 9, and it's, it's like profound, and Romans 10, and, it's, and then I get to Romans 11, and it's about the future salvation of Israel, and I'm like, what does this mean? And so a lot of Christians then just skim over Romans chapter 11. In my studies for this week, I found it's actually hard to find a, a lot of good work on Romans chapter 11. There's plenty out there because there's a lot of Christians, you know? But when you compare it to how much there is on Romans chapter 8, say, you get to Romans 11 and very little. As a matter of fact, my dude Charles Spurgeon didn't preach one sermon on Romans chapter 11. And he preached 10s and 20s on Romans chapter 12, all right? And that's because Spurgeon wasn't really sure if Romans chapter 11 
was referring to a literal future salvation of Israel. Or if it was more figurative. For him, the jury was out his whole life as to how to even interpret Romans chapter 11. And so he he probably eventually was going to get to it and just never did. My point is, Romans chapter 11, it's a great chapter, but it has some complications. Because we're here talking about a future salvation of Israel. And we're not going to get into that a whole lot this week. We'll save most of that conversation for next week. But there's a lot of theological stuff here as to whether or not, you know, all of Israel, what does it mean that all of Israel is going to be saved? You know, who is Israel here? Is there a future hope for ethnic bloodline Jews? Uh, And then all kinds of variations of theological frameworks therein. Uh, There's a lot of... uh, confusion, and there can be even contention when Israel is, is talked about, period. I mean, Israel is constantly in the news and in politics, and it, you know, it's hard to find somebody that is ambivalent on Israel and doesn't have a position one way or another on Israel. And so there's, there's a lot that goes into Romans 11 that makes it complicated and challenging for us. And then in the meantime, it's sort of this question, how does this apply to us? What does this mean for me? How is this edifying for me? Now, here's what I want to say, is that Romans 11 is a great chapter. And here's how I know that. When you get to the end of the chapter, and you get to verse, uh, 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 verse, starting with verse 33 through verse 36, what you find here is what's called a doxology. Everybody say doxology. You know, since I can't speak well, I'm going to need you to speak back to me today, okay? Um, A doxology is a hymn of praise. It only comes after something profound is said, and that thing is so profound, it leads the author into a doxology. So, for example, I'll read just a a line of it uh, in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable his judgments. That's, that's a doxology. There's only a handful of doxologies through the whole book of Romans. One of them is right here at the end of chapter 11. And so we need to read chapter 11 and study it with the anticipation that if we rightly understand what it means, it's going to lead us to a doxology at the end. And so today we're going to get, get into this, and I, I want us to see the practicality of this and why it leads Paul to doxology. And today the focus is going to be this. It's, it's on the reality that many of those, those that we love have rejected Christ. Ministry is hard. We're tempted toward frustration but we have encouragement here, all right? So I want to give encouragement, three words of encouragement today, for those who are frustrated in their hard ministry. Are you with me? Are you with me? All right. So when your ministry is hard, don't be frustrated. Why? Number one, because God is still saving. God is is still saving. 
So Paul starts off with this question, has God rejected his people? And then he moves immediately into a defense, by no means. And here's his defense. His defense has three layers. First, it's personal. Look at verse 1. He says, certainly not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So what's Paul saying here? Has God abandoned Israel? Paul's saying, hello, I'm an Israelite, all right? And I'm actually saved. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a descendant of Abraham. So I think that's, I think that's Paul's first statement. His argument is, no, look at me. He's still saving Jews, all right? His second one is theological. Let's keep going. Verse 2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Well, this is taking us back to this broader theme, which, which we start with uh, in uh, Romans 8, and that is that there is this true Israel that God has always foreknown. And, and God's people are not merely uh, defined by those who come out of the womb of a Jewish mother, but rather those who have the bloodline of Christ, those who uh, have faith in Christ, which began in history past when God foreloved these people. And every one of them is being saved. That's theological. His third layer of de defense is historical. You might know the story of Elijah. It's in 1 Kings. You've got this woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel was the daughter of a pagan king who ended up marrying the king of Israel. All right? So that's like kind of a bad situation from the start. And Jezebel was a worshiper of the god Baal, or Baal, as we typically call him. And Jezebel convinced the king of Israel to introduce the worship of Baal to the people of Israel. That's a bad situation. And so God raises up a prophet named Elijah during this time to speak out against this. But it is really, really bad. Jezebel, by the word of her command, murders all of the prophets in Israel who are speaking out against her. Elijah is on the run. He's hiding out. He's scared. He's, hey, talk about a hard ministry. By the way, not only that, in Elijah's ministry, all the Jews he's meeting are being won over by this Baal worship. It's like everybody's turning to it. Everybody's falling away from the worship of Yahweh. And so he's on the run for his life. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, we find Elijah hiding out depressed in a cave. And this is what, it, what, what he says in verse 2. He says, do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed the prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are seeking my life as well. 
He says, I am the only one left. And that wasn't just like an idea that he came up with. That was his experience. Everybody is turning against God. And church, that is painful for the Christian. That is painful. If you are a true believer and you got friends and community and family and culture and everybody within it is turning against God, it's painful. It's painful for you. Why? Because you got the Holy Spirit in you. You've been made new by the Holy Spirit and you're, the Holy Spirit's grieving and you're grieving. And Elijah was grieving at this. Nobody is left. I wonder if you know that feeling. I'm the, I'm the only one left. And you don't say that out of some kind of like prideful place. You say that out of a place of desperation. Like I feel like everybody really is turning away from Christ and it's, it's just me left. You've tried to help your friend and they've backstabbed you. The intellectual has rejected Christ and, and you, you feel so uh, stupid when you're around them. Uh, your, your brother's family in the street have rejected Christ and it feels like they've rejected you and they're getting further away. They're not getting closer. Or you look around and you see Christians that are leaving Christianity. Uh, you know, uh, people who are they start talking about deconstructing their faith. And, you know, there's some things that are good about that because there's some things that are in our faith that are actually not biblical, right? Uh, but sometimes people don't know where to stop with deconstruction and they throw the baby out with the bathwater. And by the time they're fin finished deconstructing, they're not even a Christian anymore. And you're discouraged. And you're left wondering... How, is it true? Is it me? Are they right? Am I wrong? And you're like, no, I, I, believe my, I believe the Bible. I believe the Holy Spirit is alive and active in me. I feel the presence of God. I can't walk away from Christ. Where else am I going to go? But I feel so alone. You see, this was the feeling of Elijah. And so in this moment of like true self-pity, he says, I'm the only one that's left. Look at God's answer to him in verse 4. It says, what was, the, what was the divine reply? This is it. I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Oh, he's saying, be encouraged, Elijah. You haven't met them yet. You don't know them yet. But there are 7,000 other people just like you who have sacrificed, who are hated by their friends and family, who are on the outside now because of this whole Baal movement, but none of them have bowed the knee to Baal. And we got to hear this, church. When you're in a situation where it seems like all the Christians you know are abandoning Orthodox Christianity. They're abandoning the fidelity of the word. They're abandoning what the Bible says on sexual ethics. They're abandoning what the Bible says on, on, uh, on, on unity and love and justice and what, you know, whatever. 
the situation might be. We've got to know that God is not done saving people. And that while you feel alone, there are thousands of others who are standing firm in the Word of God. And God means that as encouragement for Elijah. There are others. God is not done. God is saving. And so Paul applies this in verse 6. He says, in the same way, at at the present time, he says, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There's a remnant within Israel. A remnant is sort of like the small part, you know, um, like you, you, you grind your coffee beans and put your coffee in and there's a little remnant of coffee left in the grinder, you know. Uh, there's a, the, the, I don't, that was the dumbest analogy. Um, I was just thinking of my coffee this morning. Uh, there's a remnant of Israel that God has preserved and is saving. Paul's part of that remnant. Well, how are they saved? In the same way we are. Verse 6, he says, and it is by grace. Somebody say, by grace. It is by grace. Oh, then, he says, it is no longer by works. Not that it ever has been, but what he's saying is, is it is by grace. Therefore, it is Not by works. It's no longer by works. Like, stop trying to earn your salvation and come to God in grace. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Think about it. I loved Kelsey's testimony this morning. She she has always been a, a runner and a performer. And in that performing spirit, she always believed that she has to perform before God in order to be accepted by God. And I remember those meetings this past fall with, uh, where she sat with Jody uh, Haygood and I, and, and we walked through the gospel with her. And it was so hard for Kelsey to believe that she doesn't have to do to be saved, but that we receive it by grace. Listen, Works-based salvation is the biggest ongoing heresy that has ever been. And it's still alive and active. So many of the people who have come to Christ in our church, that was their issue. Is, can I be right with God by grace? By grace alone. And by Christ alone. And then at some point, God just turns on the lights. She told me after our third Christianity Explained class, she was, just felt like God converted her. Gave her the ability to believe in grace. Now here, here's what he says is about it. Is if it's, or it has to be this way, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What he's saying is, what he's saying is, is if we are saved by works, then we are not saved by grace. But if we are saved by grace, we are not saved by works. It's an either or, not a both and. You see, some people believe that they are kind of marred and that they have to do their part to fix their issues in their life. And if they come so far, then God is going to come the rest of the way for them, that they somehow meet God in the middle. And so it's Definitely, yes, there's God's grace and God's doing something for us. God is reaching for us. 
but I got to do my part as well. It's grace plus works. But you see, the gospel says that we are not just somewhat marred, but we are marred, marred. We are sinners by birth. We are rebels against God. Meaning there is no possibility that you could ever do enough good works to earn your salvation before God. There's no way that you could do enough good in order to be right with God. If you're struggling on how to tell your friend about Jesus, start with this fact that they are a sinner. Because it's not until they understand that they are a sinner that they will then ask you, well, how can a sinner be saved? But see, we don't understand that first part in our flesh. We don't fully believe that we are wretched sinners. We're kind of like good sinners, you know? We got like little horns, but they're cute. <laughs> no, nothing cute about our horns. Nothing cute about our sin. We're rebels against God. And if you're not a Christian in here, I just want to say this. You know that already. You already know that you are worse than everybody thinks you are. And I'm not being mean. I'm telling you how all of us in this room felt right before we became a Christian. Like, man, I am a scoundrel. I'm a worm. I'm a rat. Oh, and at that moment, you are so ripe and ready for salvation. Because it's in that moment that you turn out and you say, well, what must I do to be saved? And the preacher says, look to Christ. Well, who is Christ? The God-man, God in the flesh who lived the life that you should have lived. Who died the death that you should have died. And when he died on the cross, he took the judgment for your sin on his own body on that tree. And he paid the whole price of your redemption. And when he rose again from the dead, he defeated your sin, left, left it buried in the ground. And he walked into new life for you and for I, for all who trust in him. And so the call for us is to turn from our sins and to trust in Christ, to believe in him. It is by grace you're saved, not by works, lest that anybody might boast. For all who confess their sins, believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. Believe in Christ. And you say, that's too easy. Listen, it's grace. It's not easy because it's not easy to accept grace. But listen to this. It is something that you can do. It has to be something that you can do. Otherwise, you could never be saved. And so what do you do? What is it that we do to be saved? Well, we look to Christ and we see that he has done everything that God requires that we do. And we find ourselves in his life. We look and we find our, our death and his death and we find our new life in his new life. 
We trust completely in Jesus and we are saved. Well, that's what Paul's saying here. It's by grace, not works. So when people have rejected Christ, listen, number one, God is still saving. Number two, God is still sovereign. He's still sovereign. Look at verse seven. He says, what then? What was Israel seeking? What Israel was seeking, it failed to obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution to them. May their eyes be so darkened that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. A young person was so confused by the fact that this teacher of theirs who has an advanced degree in history and theology rejects the, the, the truths, uh, the facts of the scriptures. And this young person asked me like in discouragement, like how can that be? And my answer to this young person came straight out of these verses. And I said, well, look, look at these verses in verse 7. Paul is explaining that Israel's rejection of Christ has to do with the fact that they are blind. That they are deaf. They, they can't hear the things of God. They can't see the things of God. He says here that they've been given a spirit of stupor. That's like a drunkenness. Like 100 miles an hour drunk driver hits a family. Is that drunk driver responsible for what he's done? Yes. But you might say, well, wait a second. He was out of control. He didn't even know he was driving a car at the time he was so drunk. Does that lack of awareness mean that he is not responsible? No. You see, this is the same for a sinner. A sinner is, uh, is drunk on the world, they're drunk on their sin, they're drunk on their flesh, and they don't see straight, they don't think straight, as it relates to many other disciplines of life, as it relates to their ability to love their family, love their kids, they, they might be on point. They might be wonderful people and wonderful fathers and wonderful neighbors and wonderful educators, but as it relates to their ability to know and love God, they are inebriated. It's like sin has so corrupted us that we are actually delusional as it relates to our ability to know and love God. So how is it that this intellectual teacher is rejecting the, the truths of the scripture, which are so good and evidently plain and clear? Well, it's because sin has marred them. And there's also this factor in which they don't want to believe. Uh, there's a, an, an intentional blindness. Uh, you know, to believe in the facts of the resurrection means that you also have to believe that you must repent of your sins and turn to Christ alone for salvation. And this is too much for us. And so it's easier for us, aka the, those in their flesh, to reject Christ outright. And it's a delusion. It's, a, it's, it's a, a, a blindness. Now, in verse 10, what we see, verse 8, rather, it says that God gave them over to this. And then there's a curse in verse 10, may their eyes be darkened. So we see God's sovereignty even in their rejection. 
It doesn't make God responsible for it. They are themselves drunk on the wine of their own sin. And God, in his sovereignty, gives them over to that and hardens their heart. It's like, a, it's like two things happening at the same time. And now they are blind, they're naturally blind, and it says that they, in verse 10, may their eyes be darkened, like a double blindness, like a blind man wearing a blindfold. As if God is saying, they will not see because of their sin, as judgment against them. Now this should not make us giddy, but it should lead us to awe at the power of God. It should make us realize that, listen, when people reject Christ, God has not failed. God is not being weak. God might, in judgment against them, further harden their hearts because of their sin. Well, that's the teaching here. The third thing is this that encourages us. So that's the God is still sovereign. Third is God is still working, meaning God still has plans. You know the story of Joseph? He was 17 years old, sold by his brothers into slavery. For for about a decade, he worked as a servant for Potiphar. Eventually, Potiphar's wife lied on him, and he ended up spending at least two years, if not more, in prison, and he was forgotten. It wasn't until Joseph was in his late 30s and early 40s that he finally stood before his brothers giving out food, meaning it wasn't until he was in midlife that all of the chaos and the craziness finally made sense. You see, and you guys can't be patient with God for three days. If it doesn't make sense in one hour, I'm out. He had to wait half his life for it to make sense. And some, maybe it won't ever make sense until we get to heaven. But my point is this, and I think this is my point for this whole passage here. God is working behind the scenes. Like, do you think that you can visually, physically see everything that God is doing? You know, you don't know. Like, that's, that was Elijah's issue. He didn't know that there were 7,000 others. God was doing things Elijah didn't know. And what, what Paul's saying here is there's future hope for Israel. God is not done. The story of, of Joseph is wonderful because what it tells us is unlike so many people today who believe that God is distant and removed or others who believe that God is trying to do stuff but he's powerless, what the story of Joseph tells us is that God is intimately involved in everything in every little detail, and he is working for his purposes, and his purposes will be accomplished. And so how are we encouraged when we have a tough ministry, when people are rejecting Jesus? You know, well, people are being saved, God is still sovereign, and third, God is still working. He's got a plan, he's going somewhere, he's, he, he's, he's, he's going to save somebody. Maybe the very people who are currently rejecting Christ, God has a plan to save them. So don't give up on God. Look at verse 11. He says this, and we're just going to touch on the future salvation of Israel next week. We'll get into it a little more in depth. So I ask, 
Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Just pause right there. What he's saying is, is that Israel rejected Christ and the gospel because of that went to the Gentiles. Well, where do we see that played out? It's in the story of Acts. So Paul tells us theologically what's going on and Acts shows us the story of what that looked like. Nine times, Paul, the apostle Paul, went into a city throughout the book of Acts and he first started where? Every time he went in. Anybody know? In the synagogue, exactly. He would go into the synagogue and he would preach the gospel there. And, you know, there would be a remnant that might be saved. Most of them would not be. Most of them would reject Paul and sometimes outright completely reject him. And then he would leave the synagogue unable to continue his ministry there because of their rejection. And where would he go? To the Gentiles. That's how he went in every city. And what Paul's saying is, is because of Israel's rejection, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, meaning God was at work in all of that. God was sovereign in all of that. He's strategic in all of that. Eventually, as the story of the Bible goes on, the, the, the uh, first Christians were completely kicked out of the synagogues. Completely. They weren't even allowed to go in anymore. And they were forced then to go to the Gentiles. That was God's plan, to take the gospel to us, to the nations, to all people everywhere. And so that's what he's saying, but it doesn't stop there. There's also hope now for a full-blown revival of the ethnic Jews, verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean. Now, we won't get into all the theology here, but what God is saying is this, is that God has plans to save your brother Jews at some point. Here's my point. Number one, God is still saving. Number two, God is still sovereign. And number three, God has plans to save. He's still working. Since Israel rejected Christ, does that mean that God has failed his own people? The answer is absolutely no. God is working behind the scenes and he's doing things that you don't know. And church, perhaps you have a hard ministry. Perhaps you're laboring with those uh, in in drug addiction and it is toilsome and it, it feels fruitless. Perhaps you are, are tired of this uphill ministry in Baltimore City and we think of, you know, there was a shooting on Pennsylvania Avenue last night and a, a woman and a two-year-old shot in their car. And we're just like, what are we doing? You know, it, it feels so fruitless at times. Or maybe your whole family has rejected Christ and you feel so alone. Or the community that you're from, that you're part of, the culture that you're part of is just ignorant to the gospel and people are leaving the faith and you're discouraged. My outline for the discouraged is this. God is still saving. God is still sovereign. And God is still working plans that you don't know about. 
behind the scenes, which means you can't see it now. I remember when I was a kid, my neighbor Stephen came over and we were hanging out all day, middle of the summer, and it was about 4 p.m. or so, and we're hanging out on my little stoop uh, at my house, and my mom comes out, and she says, Stephen, isn't today your birthday? You know how like when you're kids, you just don't know what day it is? And he was like, no, I don't think so. And so she tells him the date, and, and he's like, it is my birthday. His eyes got huge. And he like immediately just turned and ran across the street. And I was thinking, and I, my mom and I started talking, and she was like, they must be, they must be planning something. You know, his parents, or his, he lives with his grandma. His grandma must be working behind the scenes to put together a surprise party for Stephen tonight. She wasn't. <laughs> she forgot. Listen, well, we disappoint each other because we forget to think about each other. And so you're thinking somebody's planning behind the scenes, and they're not. But God is. He is a great father, isn't he? He never stops thinking about you. He never stops thinking about his plans, which are good and right and beautiful, and we can trust him. And when things don't seem right, and you feel like you've been forgotten, and you feel like you've been rejected, I want you to know that God is working behind the scenes. He's doing way more than what you can see. You see, as we study this text, and as we look at this issue of Israel, the real question is not just about Israel, but it's really about God's own faithfulness. Has God rejected his people? If the answer is yes, then that means that he might reject me someday. But the answer is no. And so here's where I want to close. What that means is this. God will never reject you. He never, never will abandon you. He never will forget you. And so give him gratitude and love and praise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text, Lord, and we ask that you would continue to speak to us through the book of Romans. Help us, God, to trust you when things are hard, that we may never turn our backs on you. Thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.